This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. In the untouched regions of the forest, the kōkako runs through the treetops feeding on leaves, flowers and fruit. The South Island kōkako, with its distinctive orange wattles at the base of the bill, hasn't been sighted in many years and may be extinct. A situation the blue wattle bird of the North Island may find itself in unless its habitat is preserved. Its delightful call includes a variety of rich organ and bell-like notes. Community or chaos, we can construct and nurture community or fall into chaos. Over the next hour, Marvin Hubbard hosts conversations toward creating a fairer, more equal society. Community or Chaos is made possible with the support of Quakers Aotearoa. You'll find them online at quaker.org.nz. Good morning, friends. Today we're interviewing Max Raffbrook, who's a journalist and a senior associate at the Institute for Governance and Policy Studies, Victoria University. He's edited the best-selling book Inequality, a New Zealand Crisis in 2013 by Budget William Books, and he's also written The Wealth and New Zealand in 2015, also by Bridget William Books, and now he's publishing Too Much Money by the same publishers about how wealth disparities are unbalancing Aotearoa New Zealand. You can podcast this by going to oar.org.nz and then going to podcast and then going to Community or Chaos. Welcome to Community or Chaos, hopefully more community, Max. How are you? <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I'm well, thank you. Glad to be on the program. Can you tell us about your new book, How much, How Too Much money is um, unbalancing New Zealand. Yeah, um, and thanks for the opportunity. Um, very exciting as the, the book's um, freshly in bookstores at the moment. Um, so Too Much Money, I guess, builds on um, some of the work I've done previously on economic inequality um, in New Zealand. Uh, and you mentioned some of those books. Um, but it's kind of taking that sort of story in a new direction. So in the past, I've looked a lot at inequalities of income, um, but this book looks at inequalities of wealth. So inequalities in terms of the things that we own and that we owe, you know, who owns all the the businesses, the housing, the financial investments right throughout this country. Um, But it also looks at what wealth buys you. Um, and increasingly in New Zealand, as in other societies, um, wealth buys you a whole lot of advantages, you know, so better health care, um, better quality housing, housing in the sort of grammar zones for the most desirable schools, which are then the schools from which university courses, especially the most prestigious ones, disproportionately recruit. Um, wealth also buys you, you know, powerful social networks, political influence, all these other kinds of things. And when you add up that up all together, 
um, it translates into much greater life opportunities for people with wealth than for people who don't have wealth. And those wealthy people are then able to pass those advantages on to their children, you know, especially though, through those sort of educational mechanisms, helping their children into the housing market, in some cases now even helping their grandchildren into the housing market. And when you have, you know, these huge disparities in, in life chances and opportunities and they persist over generations, then basically at that point you have a class system. And so what I'm doing with the book is sort of confronting New Zealanders with the idea that although they like to think they live in a classless society, actually they don't. Well, how could they ever forget it for after the last 30 years? Well, that's right. Well, that's right on one level, but I guess there's a couple of things. I mean, one is, you know, New Zealand did always like to think of itself as a classless society. And, you know, that was never true, but it was probably closer to being true than in most developed countries in that period between the 1930s and the 1980s, when we had much lower levels of um, wealth and income disparities. But also, you know, at the same time, I mean, one of the ironies I point to in the book, and I'm sure you'll appreciate this, is that in the last 30 to 40 years, you know, as inequalities have widened and these social divisions have been greater, we've also been encouraged not to look at them. You know, the importance of them has been downplayed. You know, and that's one of the great ironies of living in, you know, people have got different labels for it. I call it a sort of hyper-individualistic world. You know, that idea that where you end up is just the result of your individual decisions and we should just leave people to make choices in markets and government should get out of the way. That whole mantra, you know, that really downplays the importance of social divisions of class-type forces even as it sets the stage for those social divisions to become more entrenched. That's the great irony. Is this one of the reasons why the elite, including the academic elite, are quite happy to talk about certain kinds of inequality, ethnic inequality, sexual inequality, of all kinds, and yet they won't talk about class inequality? I think there's an element to that. I mean, of course, we have... I mean, have to, they, these are real inequalities. They're real problems. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And and what I don't, what I'm absolutely not trying to do in this book is to, you know, go back to that sort of bad old situation that I think existed, say, in the 60s and 70s. We had a lot of people saying, well, class is the only thing that matters and all these other inequalities are insignificant. You know, I think it's partly because that sort of attitude that class became discredited as a way of looking at the world. Um, but it's certainly true that, you know, the emphasis in the last 30 to 40 years has been more on, you know, ethnic and, and gender inequalities. Um, and and there's, there's been really, you know, major progress made in those areas. But what I think has got lost from sight um are the way that those sort of, you know, the distribution of economic resources, the distribution of education, access to education, all those kinds of things also shape our life courses as well as our ethnicity and our gender. Um, and I think, you know, and I want to be really clear, there's not a criticism of those movements at all, but there's definitely a way in which, you know, campaigning for greater, you know, parity between men and women, say, or between Māori and Pākehā, can be sort of quite easily, you know, dealt with in an individualist world. You know, there are sort of obvious individualistic solutions for those problems that can be put forward. 
And so they can be accommodated in a hyper-individualistic sort of framework. Whereas, you know, ideas about, you know, grappling with social and economic disparities, um, let's say educational and economic disparities, are much more confronting, you know, to a hyper-individualistic mindset. And so I think that's why they've been downplayed in recent decades. Doesn't economic inequality or... um Wealth gets you not only material possessions and status possessions, it doesn't also get you political power as well as economic power. I, to, to an extent it does, and for me that's one of the most concerning aspects of it um, because, you know, I think um, societies can sort of find them Cells either in an upwards or a downward spiral in the sense that economic inequality and democratic participation are very closely linked. You know, and so the downward spiral is that you have policies that make inequality worse and poverty worse, so a lot of people switch off, don't engage, and so that leaves the stage free for wealthy people to continue to influence politics, and so inequality and poverty get worse and more and more people switch off, and so you're on a downward spiral. And I guess one of the things that I'm you know, talking about in this book, Too Much Money, is the need for us to be on an, an upward spiral. So, you know, reducing inequalities, reducing poverty so that more people are likely to participate in democracy. And so that creates the conditions for policies that in turn further reduce inequality and poverty. And yeah, and one of the one of the worrying parts of that story at the moment is that there are these opportunities for wealth to purchase uh, political power. And I talk about this a lot in the book. I've, you know, I've been one of the main people talking about it. I think in New Zealand in recent years, you see it. You see it through things like lobbying, but you particularly see it through political donations. Um, you know, in a country like Canada, you can only give fifteen hundred dollars to a political party in a single year. In New Zealand, you can give as much as you like. You know, and people give political parties hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars. And yeah, and we can see the influence that that brings in sort of all the individual scandals. You know, most of our major political parties are currently being prosecuted for concealing or improperly declaring donations. You know, we had all the scandals around Jamie Lee Ross. We've had favors being done for donors. And just a sense, I think, generally that politics has become shifted in towards the interests of wealthy donors because parties rely on them to keep themselves afloat. So, yeah, I think those things are very concerning. How Very briefly, how did New Zealand was one of the most equalitarian countries in the Western world. How did we get started on a path toward much greater inequality, and why does it matter? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's an interesting briefly. one. It, yeah, yeah, briefly. Um, I mean, I think the simplest way to put it is that we just took this hyper-individualistic turn in the 1980s. Um, and, you know, and some of your listeners will remember that time, of course, with Rogenomics and things like that, where we kind of, we out-thatchered Thatcher, you know, we out-Reaganed Reagan. We went really hard and fast on those things. So we cut top tax rates in half, you know, the top tax rate used to be 66%. We cut it to 30%. We sort of introduced laws that um, really pretty well decimated the union movement. Uh, it used to be that 70% of the country was covered by a trade union. 
that's fallen to 17%. Uh, we cut benefits by about a quarter of their value in 1991, the infamous mother of all budgets. And we stopped building state houses in um, serious numbers, or certainly, you know, for a long time, there weren't state houses being built. Um, and the government kind of let the housing market become the sort of machine that really builds, you know, big luxury houses for the wealthy, but does very little to serve people at the lower end of the housing market. So this huge shift to an individualistic mindset, I think, is what drove inequality. We had the biggest increase in inequality in the developed world between the mid-80s and the mid-2000s. And all we've done since then really is maintain that very high level of inequality. How come none of the political parties admit what they've done and apologize in any way for it? Well, I mean, it's to be honest, it's rare in any country anywhere that you get political parties apologizing you know for things that they did unless they have come to be seen as completely immoral you know like the dawn raids for which the pacific community recently got an apology i do think i mean short of an apology i do think there is a widespread acknowledgement that a lot of things were badly done in that period you know even people who are quite on the right would admit that things were done too quickly and too brutally um, and certainly at a rhetorical level, the Labour Party is now very quick to proclaim that it's changed. You know, so the last budget where they raised benefits, you know, to a moderate degree, they explicitly said this is us undoing the legacy of Ruth Richardson and the 1991 mother of all budgets. So there has been a move away from that past, certainly in rhetoric. It just hasn't been matched with substance of policy yet. Americans talk about equal opportunity. What's the difference between equal opportunity and equality? I think the way I see that conversation is that people often try to talk about opportunity as a way to distract attention from inequalities of income and wealth. But the truth is that you can't separate the two things. Um, because if you have profoundly different levels of wealth in the population, then it's just obvious that rich and poor children will get profoundly different starts in life. And so you can't say that they have an equal opportunity to succeed. Um, and concretely, we know that that's true right across the world. The more unequal your society is, the less equal the opportunities are for people to, you know, do well at school and be healthy and have a satisfying mm -hmm. career and just lead, you know, rich, meaningful, fulfilling mm -hmm. lives. Uh, <clears throat> there's a graph, pardon me, <clears throat> called the Great Gatsby uh, graph compiled by the Canadian labor economist, Miles Korak. What it shows is that if you live in a very unequal country like the United States, um, where there's huge disparities between rich and poor, half of your income as an adult can be predicted from what your parents earned. You know, so effectively half of your income is predetermined. It has nothing to do with the choices that you as an individual make. It has already been made for you. And obviously that's profoundly unfair. Um, in a very equal country, on the other hand, like Denmark, uh, you know, where there are very small disparities to begin with, and then there are very high quality tax-funded public services that redress any inequalities that still do exist, uh, just 15, one five percent of your income can be predicted from what your parents earned. 
So there's a little bit of transmission of advantage down the generations, but not much. In New Zealand, to the best of our knowledge, we have very poor data on this, but we probably sit in the middle, about 30% of your income. So quite a large quite a large chunk of your income as a New Zealander, as a young New Zealander growing up right now, is predetermined, can be predicted from what your parents earned. Isn't so this even a greater problem when you have this housing crisis? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, because you know, access to housing increasingly, you know, is is reserved for people whose parents can help them into the housing market. And those parents will be predominantly people who are themselves homeowners. And, you know, and I should be really clear about this. I've benefited from that parental assistance, you know, so have a number of the people I know. It's not that the parental assistance itself is is wrong. It's that other people, you know, there are other adults out there um, who don't get that kind of assistance because their parents can't afford it. And so what would happen in a fair society, I think, is that that parental assistance, the kind of thing that I've received, would be taxed, you know, would be taxed reasonably heavily. And that money would then be recycled to help people who aren't lucky enough to get inheritances or be recycled into providing more affordable homes or things like that so that we actually had fair access to housing. Aren't they the same people that may not be able to afford to go to university or uh, feel really um, frightened of taking out student loans or politics in university because because of lack of money and a lack of job security. Yeah, absolutely. All those inequalities compound and some of the research that I present in the book shows that um, university graduates are disproportionately likely to have parents who were themselves university graduates. Uh, and people, so people say, you know, education is sort of now generationally self-replicating. You know, it's not the engine of opportunity that it was because, as you say, the fees, the costs, the debt are incredibly off-putting to people who, you know, don't want to be in huge amounts of debt and whose parents can't help them in the way that other people's parents That's not can. always been true for New Zealand, has it? No, no. I mean, we used to, you know, the data, and again, I present this in the book, shows that we used to have very high levels of um, educational mobility, meaning that your likelihood of going to university or staying a long time in education wasn't closely linked to whether your parents had or not. But as is true, you know, across the developed world, that's been declining a lot in New Zealand. So increasingly, it is linked to who your parents were. Isn't there evidence that in countries where you have good free education, the economy in the long run benefits? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's such a huge investment in prosperity because, you know, what, um, you know, economic growth, innovation, prosperity substantially depends on is innovation. Um, and, you know, innovation, you know, comes in large part through people being highly educated and also in the, with increasingly complex jobs of the future, you know, we're going to need more and more highly educated people. Um, I mean, the argument is that, of course, that you earn a lot more as a as a university graduate, for instance, and so it's right that you should pay for that. Well, you could add a tax. But exactly, you should do it through the tax system because actually some people go to university and then they become social workers and they don't earn very much in point of fact. So they shouldn't face, you know, the, the fair way to pay for tertiary education is through higher income tax rates at which point you'll capture the people who've got a private benefit from their tertiary education. 
We're going to play a piece of music now, and then we'll come right back to inequality in New Zealand. In 1649, the St. George's Hill, the ragged band they called the diggers came to show the people's will. They defied the landlords, they defied the laws. They were the dispossessed, reclaiming what was theirs. We come in peace, they said to dig and sow. We come to work the lands in common and to make the waste ground grow. This earth divided, we will make whole. So it shall be a common treasury for all. And a sin of property, we do this day. No man has any right to buy and sell the earth for private gain by theft and murder. The lads. Now everywhere the walls rise up at their command They made the laws to shine us well The clergy dazzle us with heaven or they damn us into hell We will not worship the God they serve The God of greed who feeds the rich while poor folks starve We work, we eat together, we need no swords Bow to the masters or pay rent To the lords till we are free Though we are poor Ah, you niggas all stand up for glory Stand up now Stand up now Stand up now The orders came They sent the hired men and troopers To wipe out the diggers' claim Tear down their cottages And destroy their corn They were dispersed But still the vision lingers on Are you poor take courage You rich take care This earth was made a common treasury For everyone to share All things in common All people want Come in peace, the order's kind to cut them down. That was uh, Billy Bragg, and the world turned upside down from the English Revolution or Civil War. And I think it's appropriate from a program that's sponsored by Quakers. So... Um, we're talking with uh, Max Rafbrock about his new book, Too Much Money, How Wealth Disparities Are Unbalancing ATRO New Zealand. Is there evidence that a more equal society is better even for those who are well off? Yeah, I think there is to some degree. Um, <clears throat> you and others will be familiar with the book, The Spirit Level. Uh, which came out about a decade ago and which showed really clearly that, you know, in countries with lower income inequalities, um, there were much lower levels of health and social problems um, because, you know, there are fewer <coughs> hierarchies, there's less stress, less conflict, less material competition. And what they certainly showed is that um, in, in less equal societies, um, you know, there's a huge range of people who benefit from those lower health and social problems, you know, certainly sort of the vast majority, 70, 80, 90% of the population. 
And yeah, and even for the very wealthiest um, people, I mean, obviously they do well from a from an unequal system, but you know they have to barricade themselves, um, you know, in their gated communities, and they have to worry about high levels of crime and things like that. Um, they have to spend a huge amount on security and security guards and things. Um, so th- there are certainly benefits to them in terms of safety and security from living in a less uh, unequal society. So why do we tolerate it? Um, well, ideology is a, is a powerful force, um, you know, and New Zealand, as I said earlier, you know, got a particularly strong dose of an ideology in the 1980s and 1990s that said that, you know, your position in life was your responsibility. You know, if you were poor, it's because you were lazy. If you were rich, it's because you worked incredibly hard. Um, you know, and, and that ideology is still influential uh, to some extent. But what the research also shows, and I talk about this in the book, is that a lot of people have lost their confidence in the idea that we can do anything about it. That's a big danger, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's huge. Although, you know, it does tell you that, um, you know, people are very open to the idea. I mean, most New Zealanders are still instinctive egalitarians and they are uncomfortable um, with, you know, the large disparities we have. But, yeah, it's, it's uh, in the book I talk about some focus groups where, you know, it just takes one person in the focus group to stand up and say, well, look, you know, you might not like the situation, but what can you do? It's just, it's just the market. You know, the market allocates people's salaries based on supply and demand, and you, you just can't do anything about it. And other people in those focus groups just crumble. You know, they, they have nothing to come back against that argument with. And so I think that's one of the crucial things that even, you know, 40 years after this sort of individualist revolution, we still need to counter, you know, is the idea that government is, is helpless and inefficient. Yes, I was once talking to a politician about the huge salaries that uh, CEOs get, even in sometimes government bodies. And that person said, well, if you pay peanuts, you get monkeys. Well, another person I later interviewed, also a politician, said, if you load the trough, you get hogs. Yeah, that's, that's, I haven't heard that second one, but um, I, I get it. Um, yeah, I, I think it's that sort of idea that if you pay peanuts, you get monkeys. I mean, it's only really true in extremists. I mean, if we said you could only earn you know $90,000 a year for running a government department, I mean, sure, very few people would step up to take what is quite a stressful job. But, you know, we have people running government departments or agencies who are earning 700 800,000, in some cases, even a million dollars. And there is absolutely no evidence that you need to pay those salaries to attract good people. Um, That's just a result of, you know, New Zealand government departments having bought the line that you have to operate like a business, you know, and pay these huge salaries. And actually, one of the things I would like to see to reduce inequality is New Zealand government committing to a pay ratio. You know, so saying that no chief executive will be paid more than, you know, let's say eight or ten times their lowest paid worker. Um, and we're going to set that as a sinking lid. And over time, we're just going to gradually reduce the salaries that we pay our chief executives while the living wage lifts the 
wages for those at the bottom and we get back to a world where your chief executives are paid maybe i don't know you know 300 400,000 something like that still a lot of money but not these crazily high salaries we see at the moment when the labor party introduced um, neoliberal economics in the 80s it was the most highly educated group of parliamentarians we'd ever had isn't that true um actually it is that, true <laughs> That, that certainly wouldn't certainly wouldn't surprise more, me. Um, more of them had been to university. More of them had not only been to university, but also had advanced degrees of some kind than mm. any parliament before that in New Zealand. Yeah, and that trend has only accelerated again, and I, I talk about this in the book. Um, some unpublished research by Victoria University academics shows that if you compare the 1972 parliament uh, and the current parliament, the current parliament is much more diverse on some of those characteristics we mentioned earlier. You know, there are far more women, and that's a fantastic thing. It's far more ethnically diverse, but it has become much less diverse in terms of socioeconomics. Um, there is almost no one in the current parliament who immediately before they entered parliament was doing a working class job, you know, was doing anything like manual labor. So we very much have, yeah. we, uh, we have a parliament of what's the professional managerial class is the technical term for it. Isn't this one of the problems with uh, democracy at the present time? That politics has been dominated on both sides by highly educated elites. And what does this mean for the left and for the working class and for democracy? I mean, you're unlikely to get a Norman Kirk government, aren't you? Yeah, it, it, it's hard to see who out there would be a Norman Kirk-type figure. Although there are people still in the parliament, I mean, to be fair to them, who you know, may have ended up in the professions before, immediately before they became MPs, but who do come from quite disadvantaged backgrounds. And Kerry Allen, um, the Minister of Conservation, is, is one such. So it's not totally out of the question, but, I mean, you're right, it does feel diff very different to the days when, when Norman Kirk became Prime Minister. Um, you know, I, I think if you, if you want to talk about the wider perspective, you know, there's a lot of work, the sort of this, this analysis that um, Thomas Piketty, the French economist, has done that's becoming increasingly um, compelling, is that, yeah, I mean, it used to be that, you know, Labour parties represented sort of people on low incomes and who didn't have a lot of education, and right-wing conservative parties represented highly educated, wealthy people. And the big shift over the last 30 to 40 years is that Labour parties now draw much more support than they used to from the highly educated elite um, and don't represent, you know, people with low levels of education nearly as much as they used to. And so, yeah, you get this sort of two-party elite system where Labour parties represent the educated elite and Conservative parties represent the traditional wealthy sort of merchant commercial elite. And that doesn't leave, you know, voters with low levels of education with anywhere obvious to go, except that now in a lot of countries, unfortunately, they're flocking to, you know, right-wing populist authoritarian parties. Isn't this leave the door open for that kind of populist right-wing fascistic parties. Yeah, I mean, it does in New Zealand. I'm I not mean, sure. I'm not expecting it in New Zealand in the near future, but it certainly is the door. And certainly in Europe and America, we've seen this. Oh, 
yeah, yeah, unquestionably. And um, the other question about uh, the control of politics by the elites is that they haven't really tackled any of the major problems in a serious, meaningful way. You look at climate change, you look at poverty, you look at inequality, and you don't see major efforts. Um, not yet. I mean, I do think the landscape is totally different. Um, you know, you look at the... I mean, Labour has increased the core benefit rate, uh, stealthily, admittedly, but, you know, increased it here by $90 a week more. You know, it's increased yeah. by 40%, something like that. But they're still not well, willing to talk about taxation. I mean, one, oh, of, sure. the, one of the... Sure, the but you can be... I mean, but they have been able use. to get things across yeah. the line that would have been totally unthinkable 10 years ago. Okay. You know, so, and, and yeah, and there's, and, you know, there is now in, particularly in America and the UK, there is a discussion at least about tax. It just, again, didn't exist 10 years ago. You know, wealth taxes are on the agenda. Biden is trying to do a bunch of things. I mean, you're absolutely right that not a lot has changed in terms of actual policy, but I think the conversation around that stuff is totally different, and it's totally different around climate change as well. Can you have real mitigation of climate change and what that entails without economic change in major ways? Um, it depends how big your definition of economic change is. I mean, you certainly can't do it without addressing inequality. Um, you know, the biggest polluters are the wealthy. Um, that's true all around the world. I mean, the, the biggest polluters in the world really are the American. Wealthy. But there's also the people that argue against mitigating in a big, in a serious way. In many yeah. cases, not all uh, of them, but yeah. I mean, it's a funny mixture there. I mean, I completely agree with you. Your analysis around elites and not responding to questions around economic inequality. With climate change, is a bit different because, I mean, particularly the educated elite is probably in the vanguard, in a way, you know, of calling for action about climate change because, you know, it is a bit more something you can think about, you know, when, you're, when you've got some money and you can afford to buy electric cars and stuff like that. Um, so that's, that's a slightly different um, debate. But I do think we have to address inequality in terms of climate change because, Addressing climate change is going to create some costs, you know, in that sort of economic transformation. And we can't load those costs onto poor people, obviously. And so wealthy people are going to have to pay greater taxes, make greater contributions to this transition if it's going to be a just transition to use that Well, phase. people accept a transition unless it's just. I mean, it's going to be hard enough to accept some of the changes we need if people believe it's fair. If they believe it's unfair. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's a good argument that what you saw in France with the Gilets Jaunes was partly a protest. I mean, Piketty makes this argument about the idea that there were going to be these new environmental taxes, but they were going to fall on, um, you know, petrol. Uh, so that hit people who have to drive their cars. But those taxes wouldn't be applied to airplane flights, which, of course, are what the wealthy use. And so that was partly behind that kind of that outrage that you saw in France. And so, yeah, I, I think that's a really persuasive argument. If it isn't seem to be a fair transition, people won't support it. 
how do we and also I think when you're talking about environmental degradation we've always had the thought that we don't have to worry too much about inequality we'll just increase the um, the number of things we produce we'll just increase material uh, wealth and it may be that um, I think there's a real question about where that goes uh, when you see species disappearing, when you see climate change, you see, look at water, uh, that we may actually have to look at other ways of of dealing with our economy besides it growing materially. Well, I think the thing we absolutely need to do is set really tough bottom lines and boundaries in terms of how we deal with the planet. So, you know, environmental concerns have to be superior to economic ones. So we have to put in place the policies that will keep warming below 1.5 degrees. Um, We have to put in place policies that will protect all our native species here in New Zealand and not just maintain, you know, the levels of like, oh, we've got 300 kakapo, so we're all Mm. right. You know, we actually need policies where we have 3,000 or 30,000 kakapo. Uh, you might have to look at um, our dairy industry. Yeah. Because well, one ex- of the things ex- we've ex- done is in the 80s and 90s, we decided to continue to, to depend on one export mainly, or two, tourism. The other was dairy. We used to do uh, wool, then we did meat, and we actually hobbled industry in the 90s in New Zealand to some extent and don't we have to look at that yeah but I mean we we do yes but of course it seems to be quite difficult because um, you know people like Bill Such even in the the 50s and 60s were talking about the need for New Zealand to diversify and here we are 70 years later not very diversified Um, it, it seems to be something that we struggle with as a country uh, but yeah, we, we do need to, we're far too dependent um, on dairy and particularly with the development of alternative proteins, plant-based proteins, you know, we're particularly vulnerable in that respect. And look, and you know, and the, the Climate Change Commission and other people like that have said, well, you know, we probably need something like a 15% reduction in the dairy herd uh, if we're going to meet our climate change obligations. And I think that, you know, that's probably about right at the very least. We're going to do that. Can we do that without economic changes? Um, well, I, I mean, I think, you know, if, if you change the laws, if you change the regulations, then the economy reshapes itself around that. Um, not a lot of people realize this, but I mean, one of the greatest environmental success stories of the last few decades is the Montreal Protocol, which led to the elimination of, of CFCs and is helping the ozone layer heal itself. And because actually those CFCs were um, greenhouse gases as well, it's actually had a really beneficial effect um, for the climate. And of course, the Montreal Protocol was just a big old ban. You know, it wasn't anything sophisticated. They just said, we're going to ban these things. And in the run-up to the protocol, the CFC industry did what industries always do, and they lobbied against it, and they prophesied doom and destruction and all the rest of it. And then when the ban came in anyway, you know, of course, immediately within a year or two, they'd 
developed new products, better products, cheaper, more efficient, more environmentally friendly products that did all the things that CFCs did. You know, so if we impose a really hard environmental bottom lines and we do force the dairy herd to be reduced in size, then other innovation will spring up to meet those new constraints. Do you think that um, by having those restraints, we may actually make room for other doing other things? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's all sorts of great innovation. I mean, there's already people, uh, there's a New Zealand firm that's just starting on making wool-based sticking plasters, I think, because sticking plasters, you know, create all sorts of plastic waste. You know, and that's the kind of, you know, if people aren't putting all their money into dairy, that money will have to find a home, that capital will have to find a home in New Zealand, and it will find its way towards innovative new products like, like that. When you talk about inequality, how do you feel about, um, say, Russians or Americans buying huge chunks of uh, land and, and and buying citizenship? Um, I'm uncomfortable with the buying of citizenship. Um, I think granting citizenship to Peter Thiel, for instance, was extremely uh, doubtful as a decision. Um, Don't you want people that want to live here because they love New Zealand and they're willing to work? and make it a better place instead of somebody who is just an economic? Well, I mean, I think... I'm not saying that a person could be rich and decide they want to live here and move here and become a citizen eventually, like any other. Yeah, I mean, it's not... I mean, I I think you don't want... um, I mean, you don't... I'd be more concerned about you know, overseas investors owning like strategic New Zealand assets, for instance, um, you know, ports or things like that. I The foreign ownership of land per se doesn't particularly bother me um, because as long as you have tough rules on things about, you know, how people use their land, how they treat the environment, you know, their tax obligations, all the rest of it, I it doesn't really make a huge difference to me if the person who owns a, a given bit of land, you know, is is based in New Zealand or not. I mean, there was an issue around housing and, you know, competed from foreigners buying up houses, particularly in Auckland, which the government moved to address. And I thought that was legitimate because at the moment we have an undersupply of houses. And so you should prioritise those for people who are resident in New Zealand. But if, if you don't have a shortage of something, I'm not hugely bothered I guess, about it's owned by, whether it's owned by a foreigner or not. I guess I'm bias of wealth entering New Zealand and their tendency to want to control? Well, I mean, but the thing is, you know, if 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 wealthy people are buying up stuff in New Zealand and there's a problem in that, I mean, why does it matter if the wealthy person is a New Zealander or is someone else? The problem is inequality, you know, not the not the geographic source of, of the wealth, I would argue. Okay. If you want to change things and get people thinking serious about taxation changes, for instance. How do you make that happen, particularly when um, ordinary people don't get as much say as they once did, and wealth does give you um, more influence? Well, there's a couple of things. I mean, one is that we need much tougher rules on political donations, and the government has just said that they're going to look at those rules very specifically. 
Um, so I think at the very least we'll get greater transparency around who's giving money to political parties, um, although I don't think that goes far enough. I think there need to be hard limits on it, and I'll certainly be pushing the government to move in that direction. Um, on tax more generally, I think we, we need kind of a broad-based effort to rehabilitate the image of tax because people see it as a negative thing. They see it as taking from themselves. They see it as a burden. Um, and I think we really need to reinvigorate that notion that, you know, we we live in a collective society and in particular we draw heavily on a common pool of resources. You know, so all of us for, you know, for the, the lives we lead, in particular wealthy people for the wealth they generate, you know, are drawing on the collective infrastructure of roads and rail and the courts and health and education that we've all invested in in the past, we've all built through our tax system. And if those resources are going to be replenished, you know, if they're going to be available for future generations to flourish, then we need a greater contribution to that from people who can afford it. And that's your argument into talking about higher tax rates. We know, for instance, that healthcare is underfunded and un unaffordable for many people. Uh, one could argue, actually, that some of the resistance to vaccines have been from people who have had a bad experience with government bureaucracies generally and unaccessible health care. Uh, shouldn't we be talking about not only the need to fund health care, but the need to raise taxes to pay for that? Not only the need to have a good free education for everybody, but the need to pay taxes to fund that. And that if we fund those things, then in the long run, we're actually better off, most of us. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And that's also, you know, if you want to have a good conversation with people about tax, you know, in a funny way, you probably don't start with tax because that is always going to be the sort of uh, slightly negative bit of the equation. Um, what you start with is, you know, what are the things that tax buys you, which are the things that everyone likes, as you say, healthcare and education. Um, and, I, and I think that's absolutely the pitch that we should be making. I mean, what I would like to see is a conversation, and I'm going to be contributing to this, about what an actually free healthcare system would look like in New Zealand. You know, how much would it cost? What would it deliver? How would we organise it? And I think that's a pitch you could make to middle New Zealand, which is you know often reluctant about paying more in taxes, is to say, well, with a greater tax contribution from all of us, including you, we could have a system where you can get the healthcare you need without having to pay for it, without having to think about can you afford that doctor's bill or not. And I think that you might be able to get a really powerful place. offer. You might be able to get your hip replaced when you needed it. Yeah, exactly. Rather than having to wait, you know, eighteen months or whatever it is on the public waiting lists. I mean, it's one thing to say we can't do everything about every cancer. There's another thing to realize that the health care is actually underfunded and we can do a lot more if we are willing to pay taxes for it and if we looked at our health care in a different way. Yeah, I think that's true. And, and there's a wider point here as well, which very few people realize, you know, which is that the New Zealand government Currently, its tax take is about 30% of GDP. Uh, in a pretty normal Western European country, I mean, never mind Scandinavia, just a Western European country like you know, uh, Netherlands or France, that tax take would be 40% of GDP. So in a country like New Zealand, that would mean the government having another 
$30 billion of revenue to play with every year if our tax tape was at you know, normal sort of developed country rate. And so you suddenly think, well, yeah, I mean, that is the problem, that our government is just incredibly underfunded. It's trying to get by on $30 billion a year less than a normal sort of Western European government would be. And at that point, well, no wonder the health system seems mm-hmm. like it's struggling. And most of the political parties are afraid to talk about this up front. Yeah, I would probably say all of them. I mean, the the, the Greens, you know, have gone there on the wealth tax and that sort of thing. But I don't think even they, I don't think any New Zealand political party has come out and confronted the fact that our government is about $30 billion a year short of the revenue it needs. What would happen if somebody, if a party was up front and they'd actually talked about in terms of health care, in terms of education, in terms of everyday needs? Um, it would be a really difficult conversation because, you know, you will have seen how the conversation went around the capital gains tax, you know, a huge amount of uh, attacks on it um, by wealthy interests, a huge amount of misinformation, and that ultimately sank it as an idea. So, you know, no big tax change is ever going to be easy in New Zealand. But I think what you said earlier was right. You know, if you can tie it to real meaningful benefits, things that imply a better life for individuals and a better life collectively, like, you know, proper investment in the health system, then at least that you're starting the conversation on the right foot. If if lobbyists weren't allowed to give money to political parties or... um, politicians would that make any easier conversation in the long run yeah i i think so i mean again it's a bit like political donations we have very weak restrictions on lobbying in new zealand compared to many yeah. other developed countries well, i guess i'm including political donations in this sure i mean i, I would see political donations as distinct from lobbying um but yeah i mean you in a lot of other countries you would have, for instance, limits on the revolving door between uh, government and business so that, you know, if you step down as an MP or a minister or a public servant or a political, you know, staffer, you can't then go and work as a lobbyist for three years, say, mm-hmm. you know, so that you're not abusing that private, that privilege information that you got during your job. That, that would be something we should introduce. I think we should also have a... Uh, a register of lobbying like Ireland does, where if you're having a meeting with an MP, a minister or a senior public servant, you have to register that online. And there's a nice, easy searchable database so you can see exactly who has been meeting with whom. Pete Hoskin, who was Minister of the Environment under Helen Clark's government, said in an interview that it was really the business lobby, the business community that scared the government off from taxing carbon directly. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and the, and we've seen also things like the farming lobby, you know, be incredibly powerful in terms of getting farming a sort of thus far near permanent exemption to actually paying the costs of its pollution, you know, particularly the, the carbon pollution that it creates. So yeah, I mean, these these lobbies are real, and they're very powerful. And that's why, you know, we need to start pushing back against them if we're going to see the sorts of change that we need. Where do you see change coming from? Um, 
I, I don't think change ever comes from one specific place. I think it's a combination of things. I think, you know, I think the, the dialogue and the discussion and the ideologies have to change. And, you know, as I've sort of already mentioned, I think those things are shifting, you know, post-global financial crisis, post-pandemic, just the international discussion is so different. You know, ideas like, you know, wealth taxes are on the table in a way that they weren't before. You know, there's far fewer attacks on beneficiaries and you used to see that sort of the full-throated defense of the wealthy as, you know, job creators or the deserving is just, it just isn't there in the way that it once was. So I think the discussion has to change. You also have to have people mobilizing. Um, and we're certainly seeing that around climate, you know, like the school strikes for climate, I think have been really powerful in sort of shifting the conversation demonstrating people power um and i think then i think beyond that you have to have politicians who are willing to make the changes and they have to have the ideas and the policies that actually give effect to what people want and i think often that's the missing piece of the puzzle in new zealand there's not a lot of good sort of policy work policy development that's done that makes it easy for politicians to think yeah i can actually implement that where do you see that coming from? I mean, we, we've got right-wing think tanks, but we only have a, we don't have a lot of left-wing think tanks. No. Well, again, I think, I think space is opening up for that. I think we, I mean, we've seen the Helen Clark Foundation, you know, start up in the last couple of years. Um, I think we're seeing increasingly unions investing in some of that. Um, First Union um, funded a paper that came out a couple of weeks ago, which I thought was very good about the need for a new Ministry of Works in New Zealand, a Ministry of Green Works, you know, an actual government having the actual power to design its own infrastructure, you know, climate-friendly infrastructure, but actually go out and build it itself, you know, rather than relying on the private sector. So I think that thinking is starting to develop and we'll see more of it in coming years, I would say, as people wake up to the need for it. Well, thanks a lot for coming on board and I uh, really appreciate the conversation and I hope thanks. you continue. Thank you very much for the opportunity. And I'll just say to all your listeners, you've got some fantastic bookshops um, where you are. University Bookshop in particular is great. It'll have copies of Too Much Money. Do go out, uh, have a read. Let me know what you think. Okay. Thanks a lot. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.